Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 16, verse 24. I intend to cover the rest of Acts 16 all the way down to verse 40. Our context is this. We have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke on the second missionary journey. They have advanced to Philippi in Macedonia. They have converted Lydia. They're staying in Lydia's house. They were going down to a place of public prayer. A slave girl with a spirit of divination irritated Paul. He cast the demon out. The fortune teller slave owner was upset because he was losing income because his slave girl could no longer predict fortunes. And so he took Paul to the magistrates. They incited mob violence and everybody screaming and hollering. And the magistrates said, okay. We'll beat you. They beat Paul and Silas. I don't know why they didn't get Timothy and Luke, but they beat Paul and Silas, put them in jail, and that's where we find ourselves here, started with verse 24. Receiving such an order, he, that's the jailer, receiving what order? To bind the prisoners securely. In verse 23, we read that. He, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and secured their feet and the stocks. Now, to bind a prisoner securely you would do this. You don't put them in the outer prisons closer to freedom. Inner prison, which means you have to go through several cells in order to get out. And also you're putting your feet in stocks. That makes it even harder to get out. Now stocks, I, I know in American history they were used for shame. I don't know about in Roman history, but in Roman history they were used for torture as well as for security, as the NIV Study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The holes being pierced at different distances, the legs might be separated or divaricated to a great extent, which must produce extreme pain. I think divaricated means separated. That's a, that's a bodacious word. Adam Clark also has another quote. Lying on the bare ground with their flayed backs, what agony must they have suffered? However, they could sing praises notwithstanding. So we tend to think, oh well, yeah, they got thrown in prison. They were in the stocks. Having been beaten with a Roman flogging, their wounds had not been washed yet, so the blood was clotting, there was dirt everywhere, and the stocks were separating their legs, causing pain, probably. Bad situation. We go to verse 25 in Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now think about these prisoners. They know what, how Paul and Silas were. I'm sure the word had gotten around they had been beaten and they were in the stocks. And yet they were praying and singing. Now that was must have been something totally weird to hear in a prison. Now singing the hymns, they were probably singing certain psalms of praise. This is a great example of praising God in the midst of evil circumstances. The victory is won by praising the Lord, as the old song used to say. Prisoners are listening to this prayer. Now they may have been enticed to conversion. We don't know whatever happened to them. Here's a question I came up with. Were Paul and Silas deliberately witnessing when they were singing and praying? No, I don't think so. I think they were focused on their relationship with God. Now, there was witnessing being done tangentially, but not directly. This reminds me of a certain evangelistic organization whose name I will not mention, but it was very prominent. There was a member of that organization that was riding with me in an elevator at my college, and all of a sudden... He started witnessing to me. Now, he knew who I was. In fact, I was with him. I was going to eat, I think. And he starts saying, Dan, did you know that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And I thought, well, of course I do. I'm a Christian. You know I'm a Christian. And then I looked around. And I realized that the elevator was full of people, and he was witnessing to me for the sake of the people in the elevator. I don't think that's necessary, folks. 
don't do that. That's called hypocrisy. I mean, you know, I love the zeal for evangelism, but, you know, let's let it be real. But at any rate, they were praying as well as praising. What do you think they were praying for? Jameson Fawcett Brown says, no doubt they were praying for deliverance from the prison, which prayer was answered when the earthquake came. In verse 26, we read, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. Now, it doesn't say that the jail fell down in a rubble. It just says that the door sprang loose. So it sounds like it was probably a moderate earthquake. Well, I can't say that. It says a violent earthquake in verse 26. So if it was a violent earthquake, you think not only did the doors come loose, but maybe the walls fell down. There's rubble everywhere. A lot of shock, a lot of awe. It says everyone's chains came loose. Now, the prisoners were chained to the walls as well as to their wrist and... Perhaps the chains came loose from the wall and they had to run out with their chains, or maybe the chains sprang loose from their arms. Well, if the chains sprang loose from their arms, that would have to be supernatural, and earthquake's not going to do that. Earthquake's entirely natural, but the timing of it, of course, was not natural. So we could say this is a providential event, not a supernatural event. Not, a, not it was not a, it was supernatural, but it was not a miracle. It was providence. A natural means happened at a miraculous time well i can't even say that a miraculous a natural event which happened at a precise divinely appointed time that's providence rather than miracle but at any rate they got out we go to Acts 16 verse 27 when the jailer woke up and i'm sure he woke up because of the earthquake and saw the doors of the prison open he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoner had escaped now the niv study bible says that if a prisoner escaped Back then in the Roman Empire, if the, the life of the guard was demanded in the place of the prisoner. So the guard was thinking to save himself the trouble of the shame and distress of a trial and execution, he'd just kill himself right there on the spot. Now, Gill and Clark have an interesting comment. They say that the rule back then, the law back then, was that the punishment to be inflicted on the jailer was the same one that was supposed that was going to be inflicted on the prisoner. Well, I don't understand that, but it seems to me that the NIV study Bible is correct because the jailer, by trying to kill himself, knew that he was facing imminent execution. But he couldn't have known that Paul and Silas were going to be condemned to execution. In fact, as we see later, the magistrates had no idea of condemning Paul and, and Silas capitally to capital punishment. No. So I think the, the, the rule back then was you let your prisoners go, you're toast, you're gone if you're a jailer. We see this here. Remember when Peter was preaching in Acts 12, and Peter got caught after Herod Agrippa had searched. This is Acts 12, verse 19. After Herod Agrippa the first had searched and did not find him, did not find Peter, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution because they let him go. We go to verse 28 of Acts 16. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because all of us are here. Now, here's a problem. How did Paul know that the jailer was about to kill himself since there was no light in the jail? Remember, it's dark, it's midnight. And in our next verse, verse 29, we see the jailer calling for lights because nobody could see. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that this question has been asked by skeptical critics. You know, they've always got something skeptical about the scripture. But I think it's fun to look at these skeptical criticisms because it makes you think about what actually did happen. Well, here's some options to answer. It could be that the opening of the doors of the inner cell where Paul and Bar Silas were let in light. 
that Paul and Silas were in the innermost cell where there was no light. There may have been light in the outermost in the outside cell where the jailer was, and there could have been some light there. And so the jailer in the next verse called for lights because he couldn't see inside the inner cell. He had a little bit of light, but he needed more light to see in the inner cell. Now that's that's uh, mainly my speculation, prompted by John Gill. Adam Clark says Paul had a divine intimation that the jailer was about to kill himself in the dark. I don't think so. Jameson, Fox, and Brown say there are many other natural ways to explain this without divine communication. And I agree. You know, we don't need to be, there's plenty of miracles in the Bible. We don't need to be making up new ones. Here's a third option, and this is the one I prefer. Paul was aware of what the jailer would do in certain circumstances. You know, you escape, that was well known. You escape, the jailer dies. Paul hears a cry of despair from the jailer, and he hears the clash of steel as swords are drawn, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that, also say the jailer could have been sleeping right at the door of the inner prison, which I bet he was. And so he wakes up, he sees the door open, and when you see an open door in a jail, what do you assume? It's dark in there. He can't see in, that Paul and Silas are still in there, but he assumes that the prisoners have left because the door is open. And then Paul and Silas hear the cries of despair from the jailer. Oh, no, oh, no, the prisoners have escaped. And then they hear the sword being drawn. They don't need light to see all that. They can hear it. So I think that's the best way to answer that little skeptical problem. Now, notice Paul says in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because all of us are here. Not only are Paul and Silas there, but all of the other prisoners are there. So now we have another question that a skeptic might like to ask. Why didn't the rest of the prisoners flee? Well, here's some options to answer that question. Maybe they were so focused on the prayers and songs of Paul and Silas, and then they hear an earthquake that they're kind of zoned out into a supernatural type feeling like, what's going on here? We hear people praying and there's an earthquake, and then they just were terrified, so they just sat. They didn't move. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown takes this tack, and they say this, quote, Not less flat is the question, why the other liberated prisoners did not make their escape, as if there were the smallest difficulty in understanding how, under the resistless conviction that there must be something supernatural in their instantaneous liberation without human hand, such wonder and awe should possess them as to take away for the time not only all desire of escape, but even all thought on the subject. Well, that's very eloquent, but I don't think Jameson, Foss, and Brown are correct, because if I were in that situation, I don't care how the doors were open. I'd be heading out of there fast as I could go, especially if I was a criminal. Here's my solution. I didn't get this from a commentary, so you can take this with a grain of salt. They may not have had enough time to get out of there. You know, just because the doors are sprung, that doesn't mean the jailer's not still there. He's still there. And if they had to run through those doors, that jailer could have run them through with a sword. So, I mean, you know, they might have thought, well, now what's going on here? We've had an earthquake. The doors are open, but how do we get out of here? And sometime would have been exhausted waking up and getting oriented. Like, what in the world? Because, you know, well, I don't guess they were. Well, some of them might have been sleeping, but some of them were listening to those psalms and prayers. So maybe they weren't asleep at midnight. So that might not apply. But there, since it was a violent earthquake, there might have been a lot of rubble that needed to be negotiated in the dark. All of this was in the dark. So if they had escaped, they'd have had to negotiate the rubble. They would have, might have run into a jailer in the dark who had a sword ready to run them through. So I think that my solution answers the problem as to why Paul and Silas and the rest of the prisoners didn't flee. 
or why Paul and the rest of the prisoners didn't flee, but why didn't Paul and Silas flee? Well, here's some options to answer that question. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said they wanted to save the Philippian jailer's life. They knew if they fled, the jailer would die. Or, same thing, they might not have had enough time to flee. It was dark. There's rubble everywhere. There's been an earthquake. They have to be get themselves oriented, and they knew there was a jailer outside who could have run them through. So, whether it was from motives of self-preservation they didn't flee, or whether it's because they had altruistic motives to save the Philippian jailer's life, I don't know, but at any rate, they did not flee. We now go to Acts 16, verse 29. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in, that means rushed into the inner cell where Paul and Silas were, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He had originally thought they were gone, and oops, they're still there, because he heard their voice, heard Paul's voice. He fell down not to worship Paul and Silas, of course. They never would have allowed that, as John Gill points out. He called for the lights, because he wanted to see, was it really true? Who's, who's that in there talking, saying that we're still here? Well, and it's just natural to call for lights. You don't like talking to potential escapees in the dark. It's uh, he fell down trembling. Now, why was he trembling? Adam Clark says the earthquake must have scared him half to death. Jameson Frost and Brown said he must have also been concerned about his spiritual state, as well as natural fear because of the earthquake. And my observation is this. He probably connected the weird praying and the singing with the earthquake. He says, I've got two prisoners in here. What in the world are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns when they're in the stocks, beaten, lying on the, in the, on the prison. That's strange. And all of a sudden there's an earthquake when they were praying for their release. And there's the earthquake. That must have been God. Uh, and when you see God work supernaturally like that, you tend to be a little humble, a little afraid. So you add concern for his spiritual state along with the concern for the jailer's physical status because he knew he was going to be executed if he let the prisoners out. You put all that together, that man was a shaky, shaken man. No wonder he was trembling. He had a rough night. We go to verse 30 in Acts 16. Then he, the Philippian jailer, escorted them, that's Paul and Silas, out, out of the inner room. Well, he's either out of the inner room or out of the whole prison complex and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So it's interesting. Here we have a pagan that knows that the gospel message is either you're saved or you're, or you're damned. I was just talking to somebody yesterday who said he was having trouble with the concept of hell. And I said, well, you know, you believe in salvation, right? Well, you saved from what? What are you saved from? Everybody has a sense of their imminent doom. They know they're going to die. What's going to happen? I was just reading to the Greeks. It was uh, I was listening to some stuff on the Iliad. And their idea of the afterlife was you go down there, it's dark and it's gloomy, and you don't even recognize anybody unless you drink a little bit of sacrificial blood, and then that gives you some temporary time that you can recognize somebody, then boom, you go off into the mist again, wandering around forever like zombies on The Walking Dead. Oh, man, that's the best. That's the best that ancient people had to look forward to, assuming the Romans thought like the Greeks, which I, I suspect they did. Anyway... I don't know what the man knew about hell or about the afterlife, but it's very clear he knew he needed help, salvation. Now, how did he know about salvation? Well, it could be because the Philippian jailer had heard that Paul and Silas were preachers of a way of salvation. Because in Acts 16:17, in our same chapter, we read this, as she, that's the slave girl with a demonic spirit of divination, as she followed Paul and us, Luke and Paul and Timothy, she cried out, 
and Silas, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. So the word probably got out through the preaching of Paul and his compadres that this way of following Jesus is a way of salvation. Now, the jailer was very interested in the question of salvation. He had narrowly escaped death twice. The earthquake didn't kill him. And also the Roman penalty for letting prisoners escape. That uh, was facing him. So he had two reasons to be to think about salvation, physical salvation as well as spiritual. Adam Clark doesn't think he was worried about his physical, personal safety because the earthquake was over, he was saved, the prisoners hadn't escaped, so the Romans wouldn't kill him. And the apostles answered him as if he had asked for spiritual salvation. And that's true. When he said, what must I do to be saved? He's not talking about physically saved. He's talking about what must I do to be spiritually saved. That's correct. However, that we don't need to gloss over the fact that the his physical insecurity might have impelled him to be worried about his spiritual security. We go to Acts 16, verse 31. So they, that's Paul and Silas, said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now notice the Philippian jailer in verse 30 asked, What must I do to be saved? Now isn't that typical of most of us? We've got to do something to get saved. We've got to offer up an incense stick to the Buddha. We've got to give money to the poor. We've got to do something in order we get saved. We've got to be a good civic righteous person and do all kind of civic goods and have everybody applaud you at the Kiwanis Club. We've got to do something. We've got to be a good little boy. We've got to not smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or run with those who do. But what did Paul and Silas answer? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. It takes belief, folks, not works. It's not what you do. It's what you believe. Now, believe is, uh, repent, excuse me, repentance is not mentioned here. But repentance is mentioned along in, uh, in many other scriptures in the, in the New Testament. So when you say believe, it's assumed that that's a short way of saying believe and repent. Because belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to turn away. Repent means to turn away from. You're going to turn away from your old way of life. Goes together. That's not salvation by works. That's the part of belief. Now notice that Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer that you and your household will be saved. Aha, does that mean, is that confirm the doctrine of household salvation? One person gets saved and the rest of the people get saved? No, it does not. Because all the members of the jailer's household, whoever they were, they had to have faith to get saved. Their faith was con- Their salvation was conditioned upon their faith. Now it turns out they did believe, Acts 16.34. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. So whoever was in the jailer's house, they all got saved. But they didn't get saved automatically because the Philippians jailer believed. They, they, They got saved because they believed. Verse 34 says, he had believed God, that's the jailer, he, the jailer, believed God with his entire household. The entire household believed God, too. So we have salvation by belief, not salvation by household. The promise of salvation was made only to one Philippian jailer, not to everybody. You believe, you'll get saved, you and your household. And then he just incidentally mentions if the household gets saved, who believes, they'll get saved, too. What Paul and Silas were saying presumes faith on the, house, on the part of the household members. Now, in this particular case, everybody did believe, but that doesn't prove that in another household, 
a household that's not the Philippian jailer's household. In another household, you might have people who don't believe. And just because the head of that household believes, that doesn't mean everybody in his house is going to believe. Here's a quote from one of my commentators. Quote, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if members of your house believe, they too will be saved. That's the way you paraphrase it. The condition is the same for both both the jailer and the household. The condition is the same and the offer is the same for both, for the jailer and the household. Here, here, we go to verse 32 of Acts 16. Then they, that's Paul and Silas, spoke the message of the Lord to him, to the jailer, along with everyone in his house. Now, the whole household heard the message, and as I say later on, we're going to see they believed. There's a question here of where is this preaching to everyone in the house? Where did it take place? Well, Adam Clark says it took place in the jailer's house, and it does sound like that. Well, everyone in his house, but I don't know. John Kill says it took place in the jail. The family having rushed to the jail because of the earthquake? Oh, my gosh, is our is the head of our household, the Philippian jailer, is he all right because of the earthquake? And so they were there, and when they were there, Paul and Silas preached the gospel to the jailer and to the household. Now, one big argument in favor of that view is the very next verse says, He took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. Because we read uh, two verses later in Acts 16, 34, he brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. That's the jailer, brought them into his house. Well, that's already, that sounds like it happened after the baptism which was in verse 33. So if he was baptized in verse 33 and brought into the house at verse 34, it sounds like the baptism happened before they were brought into the house, and that would be possibly at the jail. But here's another option. Maybe they were baptized before they were brought into the house because they ran from the jail down to the river. Everybody got baptized after the preaching sermon, and then they came back to the house after that. And I think that's probably the answer right there. I don't think now... The scenario I just gave you fits the idea of baptism by immersion because they went down to the river to get baptized. But let's say that I'm wrong about that and that the preaching and the baptism were done inside the house. Well, those who hold that, and I don't know how they handle verse 34 because verse 34 says he brought them into the house, which is clearly after they were baptized. But let's just say that that there that these... Uh, commentators are correct that the baptism was done in the jailer's house, then the next step is to say, see there, we must have infant baptism because the whole household got baptized. Because in verse 33, it says right away, he, the Philippian jailer, and all his family were baptized, the whole family, and the family must have included kids. Well, here's here's an argument from Adam Clark, who's a pedo Baptist, a baby baptizer. For we could scarcely suppose that the whole families of Lydia and the jailer, remember the same thing happened in Lydia's house, the whole household got saved and were baptized. For we could scarcely suppose that the whole families of Lydia and the jailer had no children in them, and if they had, it is not likely that they should be omitted. For the Jewish practice was invariably to receive the heathen children with their proselyted parents. This is Adam Clark's quote. Here's a possible credo-baptist, believer's baptism, answer. Yeah, there were children there, but they weren't baptized. Do we always have to suppose that the early Christians did things just like the Jews? That's an assumption that Clark makes. So when it says everyone was baptized in verse 32 of Acts 16, it means everyone who had believed in his house were baptized. 
That's assuming there are children there. And, and, and there's no guarantee that there were children there. That's just an assumption. I don't know why it's everybody just assumes that they're children when it says household. I mean, it could have just been his servants for that matter. Household could mean household slaves or servants. Well, let's drop down to Acts 16, verse 33. He took them, that's the jailer, took them, Paul and Silas, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Same hour of the night is midnight. So all this is taking place in the, in the space of about an hour. Right away, he, the jailer, and all his family were baptized. Well, it says family there. Hmm, I guess that must mean that the household is, is family members, not just servants. So I need to retract what I just said about the household perhaps not containing family members. All right, let's assume once again, let's go back to this infant baptism argument. Let's assume that... They were baptized in the house. Aha, say the pedo baby baptizers, the pedo baptists. Where are you going to find water to baptize the whole household? How are you going to dunk everybody in the house? Here's my quick answer to that. Is it so improbable that a jailer had a bathing pool in his house? What's so improbable about that? People had pools in their house. It doesn't take a lot of water to baptize somebody. It takes about a bathtub full. There was a pool there used to wash the apostles' wounds. Perhaps that pool was big enough to baptize somebody. Adam Clark poo-poos that idea, the pedo-baptist. He says the fact that there would be a pool there to wash the apostles' wounds, this would not require putting them into a pool or bath as some have ridiculously imagined. Well, no, you don't have to put them in a pool or bath to wash their wounds. That's true. But just even though that's true, that still doesn't, that doesn't require a pool to bathe their wounds, but a pool might have been there for immersion, to take a bath in. And of course... As I said earlier, the baptism might have been at the prison, in which case the pool would have, there could have been a pool at the prison too. And as I mentioned earlier, and John Gill has this idea that the party could have gone down to the river unobserved at night and returned before dawn in order to get baptized. So anyway, that's a lot of speculation about how that baptism was done because you know when you have controversy, you have a lot of speculation. I personally believe they were dunked. Acts 16.34, he, the the jailer brought them, Paul and Silas, into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he, the jailer, had believed God with his entire household. And as I said earlier, all of them believed, all of them got saved. Wasn't done by magic, just because the Philippian jailer believed, that didn't automatically make his household believe. And once again, let me point out that he just now brought them into the house, which sounds like all the verses previously, which I discussed, the baptism happened earlier than him bringing the jailer bringing them into the house, which sounds like the baptism did not occur in the house. We go now to Acts 16, verse 35. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, Release those men. <laughs> well, they were already released, actually, at least from the jail. They weren't released from the custody of the jailer because they were hanging around with the jailer. But, of course, the magistrates didn't know that, and so they sent their bailiffs, their guards, their police, their officers, and they said to the jailer, release those men. Now, why, why would the magistrates change their minds? They jailed Paul and Silas the night before. One night goes by and they change their mind. They say, release those men. All right, now let's look at that. Here are some options. John Gill says the earthquake must have scared them. And to back this up, he gives a, a, a manuscript variant of the Codex Biza and his other transcripts also. Uh, that have a variant reading here that support this. The variant reading says this, Release those men, remembering the earthquake that had happened, they were afraid. 
So that pins the pins the change of mind on the earthquake, which they must have felt in their beds that night, I suppose. Option number two. They may have reflected upon further consideration that they had been too harsh. This is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's theory, and I think they're right. After all, the charges were totally trumped up. There was no proof of their guilt. They had flogged a prisoner without proof of guilt, and they start, might have started thinking, you know, that was that was not good judicial practice. We might get ourselves in trouble for what we did. Now, in trouble with the Roman authorities. Now, the magistrates at this point did not know that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, but they did know they were innocent, <laughs> or at least they knew that there was not enough proof to convict them of all the things that they were being accused of. What were they being accused of, by the way? They were Jews, and Jews were, of course, not in favor because they had been expelled from Rome. Well, that's just prejudice. That's not a legal charge. They're teaching things that are not legal religiously. That was the second charge, and that was true because Christianity was not a favored religion. But the magistrates didn't like to get involved in religious questions. And the other thing is they were disturbing the peace. Well, the magistrates probably looked around, and they probably knew what was going on. They probably knew that all these guys are doing was teaching their doctrine. It was the accusers who were disturbing the peace, the owners of the slave girl who stirred up all the trouble. So they probably knew, hey, we made a mistake here, so we're going to let them out. Third option as to why they let them, wanted to let them out. This is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's idea. They, the magistrates may have seen that the prisoners were under divine protection and became afraid. They say, my gosh, they, you know, they might have heard this. It might have been reported to them, hey, they prayed, and there was an earthquake, and they got out, and that might have scared them. Now, I thought about this further, and I thought, well, yeah, but they wouldn't have known about the divine protection unless they had seen the release or at least heard about it. And here they're asking for release, assuming it has not happened. That's what it sounds like. However, they might have heard the story by now of the earthquake and they were now asking for Paul and Silas to be let go completely not just in other words not saying to the the jailer to the to the to the jailer release these men so we can try them further no he's saying release these men completely so they can go we've heard about the earthquake we don't like what happened it scares us so so let them go all right that's reasonable or it could be a combination of both they thought they'd been too harsh or they they might have been scared because of what they saw as some kind of God letting the prisoners out. So these people must be some kind of holy men, so we better let them out. Another option, last option. This is my idea. I didn't read this in a commentary. Take it with a grain of salt. They may have arrested Paul and Silas for their own protection. They saw that the mob was upset. They realized that Paul and Silas were innocent. They knew the violent mob wasn't interested in justice. So they said, well, let's just arrest them, put them in jail so the mob can't hurt them. Could be. I don't know. But at any rate, they realized they didn't have a case against Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas were innocent. Luke likes to write that. You know, he wants to say, hey, he constantly points out that the apostles were innocent of, viol innocent of, vi of inciting violence. He doesn't want anybody to get the idea that the Christians are not in favor of law and order, even though they were preaching a revolutionary gospel. We go to verse 36 in Acts 16. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come now and go in peace. Now, you know the jailer must have been thinking, Ooh, this is nice. This man led me to, these men led me to salvation and my household to salvation, and now the authorities are going to let him go. Hallelujah. This is wonderful. However, Paul had no intention to do what the jailer thought he would like to do. Paul says, No, I'm not going to slink out of town going in peace. We go to verse 37. But Paul said to them, 
They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail. And now they are going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, first of all, who was Paul speaking to? The verse says, Paul said to them. Previously, he had been speaking to the jailer, who is not a them. I'm assuming here he's speaking to the jailer and to his household who who were listening on. And then he complains about the fact that they were going to try to escort him out of town privately, secretly. Well, what is Paul complaining about? First of all, he got beat, and he was beat publicly. That was a disgrace. If you're going to disgrace us publicly, you need to, to give reparations publicly also. Okay, well, that makes sense. They had not only beat them publicly, they had beat them without a trial. So that's illegal. So... You're going to do something illegal to us, and you're going to sneak us out of town. Paul says, no, we're not going to let that happen. Adam Clark says, every principle of the law of nature and the law of nations was violated in the treatment these holy men met with from the unprincipled magistrates of this city. Paul himself says that he was treated outrageously by these magistrates. In his letter to the First Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, After we had previously suffered and we were treated outrageously in Philippi, so Paul said, no, 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 no. Hey, you're not going to get away with this. But now the next question we ask is, well, why would they care? Why don't they just leave town? Were they trying to salve their wounded pride? Were they so prickly? They'd been humiliated, but aren't they Christians? Can't they just suffer it and go on without causing a stink and, and proceed with preaching the gospel later on in other cities such as Thessalonica? Well, the NIV Study Bible says that Paul and Silas weren't looking to salve their wounded pride. Rather, they were concerned for the reputation of the future Philippian church, and I think that explains why Paul was not in such a hurry to get out of town secretly. He wanted to show that, hey, we are innocent, guys. Don't you start coming down on the, my Christian brothers here in Philippi because of what you think I did or what Silas did. Silas and I did nothing wrong. This is the NIV Study Bible's observation as well as John Gill's, and I think they're right. Notice that Paul says, we are Roman citizens. That means Silas is a Roman citizen as well. The fact that Paul knew what the law was about beating Roman citizens, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen. Well, it's actually probably illegal to beat anybody without a trial. But even with the trial, you don't beat Roman citizens. Even if you think they're guilty, you don't do that. So Paul knew the Roman law. I don't know how learned you would have to be to know that. That might have been common knowledge, but Paul knew it. Now, let me go back and mention again who Paul was talking to. I mentioned he was probably talking to the Philippian jailer and his household. He could have been speaking to the officers who were sent from the magistrates. I'm not really sure who the them refers to that he was speaking to. He could have been speaking to the jailer and the household, and then the jailer went back and told the police, and then the police, the officers, then went back and reported to the magistrates. doesn't matter. We go to verse 38 and 39. Then the police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and escorted them out. They urged them to leave town. Escorting them out, they urged them to leave town. Not escorting them out of town, but escorting them out of wherever they were. I guess the Philippian jailer's house. Now they were afraid, verse 38 says. Why? Because they were afraid that they would be called to account by the Roman government, as John Gill said. This is what they hadn't been concerned about. They hadn't been concerned about the injustice and cruelty of what they had done. That's on a judicial level. They also were totally unconcerned about the wrath of God for what they had done. 
Adam Clark says the Roman law said that an insult to a citizen was an insult to the whole Roman people. So that was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. And they had whipped a Roman citizen without a trial, without evidence. Now, it's interesting to me that they just assumed Paul was a Roman citizen. He just said it. I'm a Roman citizen. How did the magistrates know that Paul was not just bluffing? How did you prove your Roman citizenship back then? That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. I don't know. I don't think that Paul had a passport, did he? Papers? How did, how did you prove that? But at any rate, the magistrates believed, and they were very abject, and they came shuffling to Paul with their heads down and said, So sorry, Paul. So sorry, Silas. And escorting them out. We'll take you out, and here, here's the door to our city. Please leave. So they came and made a public apology to Paul, just like Paul requested. The jailer didn't slink. Paul and Silas didn't slink out of town under the escort of the jailer. But rather, the magistrates publicly came and publicly apologized to them. The church's reputation is now safe, and Paul and Barnabas are free to leave town at their leisure. We go to verse 40. After leaving the jail, they, Paul and Silas, came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. So they came to Lydia's house very publicly. Everybody could see him. Nobody could touch him. They encouraged their brothers, which means they took some time to do some more teaching, some more edification, exhortation. Their leisurely stay there proved they were not forced to leave, as Jameson Foss and Brown say. They left on their own accord, and they departed. And in the next chapter, we'll see where they departed to. They ended up going to Thessalonica. So we'll take that up next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.